you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. I should be saying locate, because uh, a lot of people have Bible on a, a thingy, you know. And uh, <laughs> Acts chapter 2, one of those uh, iPods or iPads or... Obviously, I need one for Christmas, so I'll know what they are, Linda. <laughs> Acts chapter 2, uh, I'll be reading verse 1 through 14. Uh, we are, um, I preached from the first chapter of Acts last week, and I'm not planning to preach on every chapter, but there are some things in the book of Acts that just, I mean, it doesn't in the scripture anywhere else, and uh, they are uh, fundamental to understanding how the gospel contained among the disciples and those who saw the miracles of Christ suddenly burst into the world and expanded to where within 33 years of the death of Christ, nearly the entire world knew or have heard of Jesus Christ and the gospel. So an amazing book, and we'll ask you to stand together out of respect to the word of God as I read verse 1 through 14 from the Holman version of Acts chapter 2. It says, <clears throat> When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven. And it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues, like flames of fire that were divided, appeared to them and rested on each of them. And then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. And they were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, and Cappadocia, and Pontus, and Assyria, and Phrygia, and Pamphylia, and Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking the magnificent acts of God in our own languages. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, What could this be? But some of them sneered and said, They're full of new wine. But Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and proclaimed to them, Men of Judah and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we, we ask your blessing on this scripture. And this was such a tremendous event in the life of the church and among the disciples. And we read that Peter stood up. And Lord, it's an amazing thing what 
you, Christ, have done in their lives, what you did, that uh, you took fishermen and you took tax collectors and you took others and you transformed them into your disciples and then into your apostles. And we are grateful that men's lives can change, that women's lives can change when they meet Jesus Christ. And mostly we're grateful that, Jesus, you are alive. And you are with us. And this same Jesus that so changed the hearts of the disciples is present with us and can change our lives. And Lord, we ask you to put your spirit and help him to take control of our lives that, Lord, we might be sold out 100% to you and to your calling. And we give you praise that for the privilege. And we ask you to speak clearly from the word of God to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. I told Linda uh, when she asked, what she should put in the bulletin for the sermon. I said, well, I got five sermons. She says, it's not going to be long, is it? <laughs> but this whole, this whole first chapter and second chapter, uh, it, it's kind of an amazing thing. See, the disciples were aware of the resurrection of Christ, but it was totally unexpected to them. And we know they should have expected it. Jesus kept telling them that I must needs go to Jerusalem. I will be crucified and I will be buried, but I will rise again. And we read that in the Gospels and you kind of wonder why the disciples didn't get it. Why on Easter Sunday morning, the, the women are the ones going to the grave. And they're going to finish the embalming of the body. They don't expect Christ to rise from the dead. And then they come and an angel says, why are you here seeking the dead? I mean, seeking the living among the dead. He is not here, but he is risen. And you know, it was like an electric shock. that It just went through them and they... They didn't know what has happened. It just changed everything. And it says that the women ran and they were told to tell the disciples, but they didn't tell anybody. But then we read in another account that Peter and John, they went and told Peter and John and they come running and they saw it. And Peter looks at it and he sees the burial claws and uh, here were the claws that covered the body and here were the claws that covered the head. And uh, Peter wondered about it. But John's the one who gives us that picture, and he says, but the disciple whom Jesus loved believed when he saw the grave cloths. And uh, so John made a point to let us know he believed before Peter did, you know. Isn't that? He also tells us he got to the grave first. I just find that so human. These were real human beings. They weren't made up. They weren't from somebody's idea. And they thought, well, this is the way it must have happened. And they give you fictional characters. These were real people. And the most amazing thing is Jesus is there. And they don't just see him once. They see him in the next 40 days many times. And one time, even with 500 people there, they see Christ. 
And, and uh, they all saw him, 500 folks at once. Now, I've heard of hypnotists that can make people think they saw something. But can you make 500 people at one time see the risen Christ and know that he's alive? And then we left off last week talking about how he ascended into heaven. And I've skipped this one passage. Uh, I'm starting, of course, here in Acts chapter 2. But I skipped the passage. Um, to me, it's rather mundane. Have you ever noticed that... Uh, uh, there's rapture and routine in life, right? Rapture are those moments of high mountaintop experiences when, you know, certain songs or certain preaching or certain things that happen and you just feel lifted onto a mountaintop so close to God. And then there's like always, there's always the coming down from that. And then you're in the, sometimes a low valley, you know. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just jump from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop? And, and so we have this little part beginning with verse 15 in Acts chapter uh, 1. And it says that they were told, of course, they were told to go to Jerusalem and await the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and that God had a gift to give them. And, uh, and they were to wait there in Jerusalem for this gift. And here in chapter 1, verse 15, it says that during those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. Now, for one, it may not seem like a significant thing, but Peter's standing up. I mean, Peter's the one who denied Christ three times. Peter's the one that Jesus finally had to come to him and say, because Peter wouldn't come to him. And he had to say, Peter, are you serious about this? Do you really love me? And you remember what Peter said. He said, I, I like you. <laughs> you know, and, and three times he asked. And, and then the third time, Peter's so grieved that he asked him three times. Uh, because the last time he said, do you even like me? And Peter says, you know, you know all things. You know how I feel toward you. And he couldn't say with any boldness. Before he would have said, God, I love you. I love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and body. But remember, he denied Christ three times. And now he has failed Christ. He realizes that uh, he's not everything that he thought he was in his relationship to Christ. And so we read here that Peter stands up among the brothers. Peter, something has changed in Peter. Have you ever felt that Christ was absent? That I mean, no, you know, you trusted him as Lord and Savior, very close to you then. But have you ever felt like God is maybe not listening to your prayers or he's far country or something, that, that you're pretty much on your own? I was telling my Sunday school class because I did, uh, about the mother who dropped off her I used to drive a school bus while I pastored down in Beaver. I had a lot of part-time jobs. But uh, I drove a school bus, and I hated the first day of kindergarten. Right? I mean, you had to, it, talk, it takes you 20 minutes longer to do your route with the elementary because all the moms are standing there with their kindergartners. And the, and the kids are anxious to go to school. They can't wait to be where the other kids are and stuff. And the moms are crying. And, oh, you're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. You know? And they can't bear to see their child climb up on the bus because, you know, even when a kid starts to walk, he's walking away from you. That's hard. We want to hold on to him. And uh, the, the fact is that though 
that they are they are aware that at some time you have to let go. You got to let them go without you. And I know it's a hard thing, but you have to do it, right? And you're putting them in the hands of complete strangers. What do they know about my child, you know? And sometimes they want to tell me, make sure he sits in this seat and he's by this window so I can see him when he's gone. You know? Oh, yeah, okay, we'll take care. We cater to mothers giving away their kids, you know. But I'll have you next, the next day is a little different for the kids, man. They got it all worked out. They know what they're doing. And they're kind of, Mom, leave me alone, you know. But Jesus left his disciples alone for a period of time. I don't know how long it was between uh, the day that Jesus ascended into heaven. But if it's 40 days, then it was a matter of 10 days before the Holy Spirit or 11 days before the Holy Spirit came the gift that God had to give to them took control of them. And uh, so here's a 10-day period when Christ has ascended to heaven. He doesn't even make appearances, and they're left alone. And what do you do? Well, you obey the last thing that Jesus said do. And they did. They went to Jerusalem. They went to the upper room that probably became their headquarters. And we read here that during those days, Peter stood up, the number of people who were together were about 120. Well, I thought there were 12 disciples. And we find that there was a much bigger group, larger group that believed in Christ than just 120. I mean, just the 12. And here's 120 people gathered together. And, and here's what I talk about between routine and rapture, right? They got some business to take care of. How many of you just love business meetings? Our church, we used to have it every month right on target and then we moved it to every two months and now we move it to whenever we really have to have a business meeting and business meetings may not seem important but they are we're going to have one next week by the way it's not in the bulletin but we need a business meeting uh, but the whole thing is that business meetings seem to be oh you know it's just all that stuff you have to vote on stuff and all this other you have to deal with your budget and your finances and all the things you have to deal with why do we have to do all that the lord let the lord lead us but it's like the wind of the holy spirit is like the uh, uh, wind on a lake that uh, it sweeps in and if you don't have the structure to to let it move you if you can you hear the spirit and he moves in you and you have no place to go you have no organization or anything about who does what and where do you go and how do you get there without organization it's just like having no sails on your boat the wind passes by you feel it you know it's there but it doesn't move you and it can't take you anywhere churches it's vital for churches to have organization. Not, not the organization doesn't tell us what we're to do, but it makes it possible for the Holy Spirit of God to work in the hearts of people, and it gives Sunday school teachers a chance to teach a class. It gives the leaders and everything else. So I'm not preaching about organization. But I want you to know that these routine things have to happen, and so you'll be ready for those rapturous moments. Does that make sense? We all... Uh, and as you read on, uh, they had a real difficult job. Remember that Judas had betrayed Christ, and then he'd gone out. He hung himself. He was cut down, and he fell. I always had trouble as a youth reconciling uh, in one of the gospel. I mean, the way the gospels tell it, 
that uh, he hanged himself, right? And the way the book of Acts says, he fell headlong. And uh, it wasn't until I went to Bible school that they made sense of it, that when they cut him down, he fell down, and, and uh, you know, he died in that field on the ground. I mean, or at least his body was there. And the whole point is sometimes uh, you think you have contradiction, but you just haven't studied enough to see, you know. Uh, there's several places in the Bible people, oh, Bible's not true because in this one it says Saul fell on his sword, and this one it says some guy came along and killed him. Now, they can't both be right, right? But uh, you can work those things out, and, uh, and uh, it makes complete sense that the guy would claim to kill Saul. Anyway, we're not there. Okay, where are we? We are in chapter 2. And I want you to understand there's a lot of confusion about the day of Pentecost. First, let's talk about Pentecost. Pentecost was, is, is the word 50. Uh, it was a feast that they had in the Old Testament. And it came, there was the Passover, and then 50 days, or four, wait a minute, Seven Sabbaths after the Passover. That's 49 days. And, uh, and they wouldn't have had the festival on the Sabbath day. They would have it the next day, the Feast of Pentecost. And so it really was on the 51st day. I don't know how all the math works out in this, but on the 51st day, they would have the celebration. And it also coincided with the harvest of the wheat. You know, if you go by the moons and stuff, the weather patterns, supposedly in 50 days, you know, you'd be able to harvest your wheat if you planted when they usually planted. But the whole point is that the wheat harvest took place on the Feast of Pentecost, uh, or at that time, and they were celebrating the first fruits of the wheat. And they would take, they would bring enough wheat to the temple that they could make two loaves of bread. And the loaves of bread had um, leaven in it. So they couldn't be offered on the altar. They were instead waved over the altar like a wave offering. And then the, the whole idea was we give our harvest to God and eat, they wave it over, you know, the altar and then the harvest is given back to them. That's sort of like what real giving is. You give of the first fruits knowing that God has given you the whole harvest, but you give the first fruits to say, God, all of this is because of you. And then he gives it back to you to use and to take care of your needs and, and to feed people and all of this. You know, what would you do if all uh, you gave your whole check to the God and he didn't give anything back? You'd starve to death, right? But... He asked us to give the tithe because it's an offering of first fruits. I just made this money, and I know that God gave me the job, and it's important. So I give him an offering to say, God, it all belongs to you. And he gives it back to me so that I can, not the tithe, but he, he gives it back to us so that we will know. Well, on the day of Pentecost, here are not the 12 disciples, but 120 disciples in the upper room or at least believers. And it was like, uh, now I told you that the, the offerings that they waved, 
were had leaven in them. And leaven is a, a spiritual, or at least a biblical idea of sin. Jesus talked about, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And uh, the idea is that the, the, those loaves were not pure enough to be the sacrifice, but they could be given to God and used, you know. And the whole point is that on the day of Pentecost, here are the 120 disciples, and they have been freed from their sins. I mean, in the sense that they, the penalty for sin has been paid for. You get that? Christ died on the cross. He paid for the penalty of sin. And that people that are saved will know that sin no longer brings forth eternal death. If they have trusted Jesus Christ, their sin is paid for. God looks at you with all of your sin and he declares you not guilty. Not because you don't have sin, but because it's paid for Amen. by Jesus Christ. He took away your sin and um, he took it upon himself and he paid the penalty for our sin. Now, it's a hard doctrine for some groups to understand, and they're always trying to say, well, then we're without sin. But the truth is we have the tendency to sin still. We're still in this old body. He hasn't changed our body into the glorified body, and you sin. Even if you say you have no sin, Paul says you're a liar, and I know lying's a sin. So you can't, as a Christian, walk, well, I never sinned anymore. All you have to do is talk to your spouse. You'll find out you do still sin, right? Here's the whole thing. It, it isn't that we are without sin now, but one day we will be. There's that truth. But here's the day of Pentecost. These are just human beings, but they have been with Jesus. They've trusted Christ, and they know that he is resurrected from the dead and that he is alive, and uh, they've seen him ascend into heaven. Did they have the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost before the Holy Spirit came down? Yes, they did. Jesus said to them, he breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. On the outside? No, I believe you. no one could have been saved until Christ died on the cross. I mean, the Holy Spirit, we read of the Old Testament saints, and if they were saved, they were saved by faith, by the sacrifice of the Lamb, which was symbolic that Christ would die. And uh, it wasn't until Christ rose from the dead, till on the cross he defeated the power of Satan, he broke him, and uh, we have this thought that he, he took the man of the house that guarded the house and kept it, uh, you have your personality, you have your heart, but Satan also can influence your heart before you're saved. And he can tempt you and he can work in you to, to make you want to sin. He can't make you sin. That's never a possibility. Satan, you can't ever say, the devil made me do it. Even if your name is Flip Wilson, you cannot say that and be right. But I want you to understand something here. That he had to, he talked about this when he drove out demons. He says that you, you drive out the demons, but if the, if you don't take care of the man of the house, if you don't, if you don't, you know, change him, the demons will come back. Does that make sense? 
You can get rid of a problem, but the problems are coming back if you don't put someone strong in that house. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit, talking about the presence of Christ in us. You, as a born-again believer, can never be possessed by satanic forces. You can never. They can't come in and take control. Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Now, I, there are, I know there's all kinds of teachings out there. Different denominations teach different things. There are some that say that when the Holy Spirit came here, it came. But I don't think so. I think it was a manifestation of the Holy Spirit that he came and he filled them. But I think that, you remember John talking to his disciples? He said, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And I believe that the moment you trust Jesus Christ, you receive all of the Holy Spirit that there ever is to get. I know I shared it, shared it in one sentence in last week's sermon, but it's important that I uh, you know, help you understand this. The way the scriptures talk about the Holy Spirit, it refers to him not as an it or a power. Now, the Holy Spirit has power, but he is not just the power, like electricity or, or something like that. He is one of the three persons of the Godhead. He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he's always referred to as a person. You know, you, can, you, could, uh, you could curse your electric circuit. You could curse electricity. And you, you know, you can call it names and stuff, but the electricity doesn't respond and say, okay, you're going to be that way. I'm not going to help you. But try doing that with a person. The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit can be quenched. And he can be grieved. And we're to be aware as Christians that, that the Holy Spirit is there as a comforter. John, Jesus described the comforter who would come. And it would be the Holy Spirit, and he had several jobs, one of which is to convict us of sin. The second, another job is to convince us of Jesus Christ. And the third job is, of course, to keep us. You see, you are sealed. Now, I don't know any of you made jam. I don't, I've been in jams, but I never made jam, Right? But I used to watch my mom make jam. And she poured wax on top of the, I mean, she cooked the jelly, well, I don't know what she cooked. But she cooked fruit, and then she'd stick it in a jar, and she'd pour wax. I liked the wax part. I thought that was so cool. Hot wax, first time I stuck my finger in it, I realized that's not cool at all. It's hot. But you just pour wax in the top of the jar, and it seals it. It can't be corrupted anymore. It can't lose its, I don't know, over time, I'm sure even that could happen. But it seals it. Do you know what the seal is on your life? When you accept Christ, why you are saved once and for all, and you can never lose your salvation, is because God has placed his spirit in you. And there is nothing greater than God himself. And Jesus, in speaking to this, talked about, I am in my Father's hand. You're in my 
You're in my hands, and you're in my Father's hands. Could you imagine Jesus holding you in his hands? What power could ever break Jesus, you know, in this? And then God himself holding both Jesus and you in his hands? Whatever would take you away from Christ would have to be stronger and greater than God. And it cannot happen. So we Baptists believe once saved, always saved. And yet so many Baptists make several professions of faith. Is it because they're getting saved over and over? Or is it because sometimes you may think you're saved, but you're not? You see, to be really saved is to know that Christ lives within you. I said, I usually say a sentence at the baptism, and uh, it says, If you died today, would you wake up in heaven? Which is a wonderful way, I mean, and I really expect that they believe that. When I counsel them before baptism, I make sure that as far as they know, they have asked Christ to come into their heart. He has come in. That's what we're looking for. I don't want to baptize somebody that is not saved and later they, they think they've lost their salvation. You, you, you can be baptized and be a member of the church and still be lost because you don't have Christ dwelling within you you can sign the cards that many churches give out they'll baptize you and they'll make you a member but doesn't mean you're changed doesn't mean you're a new creature you see christ in you is your hope of glory you need to know and without a shadow of a doubt that jesus christ is in your heart the holy spirit I believe was already present on earth when Jesus was born. But the Holy Spirit couldn't enter the hearts of men until Christ paid the price of sin and then rose again. And then people could be saved. But Jesus meeting with his disciples said, he breathed on them and said, may you be filled with the Holy Spirit. May you receive the Holy Spirit. It was John that said, I baptize you with water, but you need to be baptized. Now, we know other denominations use the term baptism uh, when someone begins to speak in tongues or do some outstanding thing. Uh, was this an important event? Absolutely, this was an important event. Day of Pentecost, first fruits. And here you have the 120, and God makes it visible uh, with tongues of fire on their head, when, you know, and it's like a great and mighty rushing wind. And it wasn't just heard inside the house, if I read this correctly. It was so loud that a crowd gathered and said, what's happening here? Kind of like in the village when there's a train going by. Everything stops, well, at least at our house. Uh, we have to get everybody, if they're sleeping, we have to wake them up. Come, the train, the train is coming, you know, and you could hear it miles away, blowing that silly whistle all through town and stuff. And uh, the train, it's only three cars usually, but it's the train. It's the only thing to do around here, you know, in the middle of the day. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's a big deal to us, you know. Oh, the train, when I moved here, it was so quiet up here. 
And we'd been in Pittsburgh area and with the uh, traffic and all this stuff. And I tried to sleep at night and there's crickets or something. You know, and, and it was so quiet. I couldn't go to sleep. And then the train came by. 10 o'clock at night. And I go right to bed. I needed some kind of noise as a civilization out here. I'm not in Alaska in a wilderness, you know. But I remember that. But the train, that rushing mighty wind was not just for the benefit of the people inside. But if you read what it says here, Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. First, I want to comment on that. All together. 120 people all together. What were they doing in that place? They were praying. They were waiting. Now, I hate waiting. Do you hate waiting? I hate going to a doctor's appointment one minute earlier than I need to be there. And they want me there 15 minutes before it's my appointment. They don't even have a magazine I want to read. And I got to, you know, I'm kind of like that. I just need to be doing something. So I do something, you know. I fold stuff out of their magazines and everything while I'm waiting. And then, and the whole idea is waiting, and you know that's coming, but you don't know when it's coming and stuff. But they're not waiting like that. They're waiting, believing that it's going to happen, and they're already praying. They're praying for the lost people they know. They're praying for the sick that they know. They're praying that their lives might be changed. I mean, they're praying, and they're praying together. And it says they were all in agreement. I'd like to see a group of people that are all in agreement. It'd be new and different. If you ask what color of the carpet we should have, all of a sudden you find out everybody has an opinion. And then finally somebody settles it and they say blue. And blue is good color. And uh, then they vote. And even if they don't agree with one another, we go with the majority, right? So you got 51 people who vote for it and 49 people who vote against it. And so the 51 win, right? But all the other 49, when that blue carpet gets dirty, I told you we should have had red. I told you, you know. You got half the group against you. We're in a nation that elects its president by a simple majority, or not, not even by that, but by a little bit of percentage. 51% is all you have to have to win the election. That means 49% voted against you, right? And no wonder we never get anything done. Because the whole nation isn't behind the president. Does that make sense? In Baptist churches, I don't care what the simple majority is. I'd like them to all be in one accord. I've yet to see that happen. You know, but I've, heard, I've been in one church. They voted. They said that, uh, well, we had some dissension. And then we took an, another vote to just say it was unanimous. You vote to say that it was unanimous. That makes it unanimous? I, you're lying is what you're doing, you know. But I want you to understand, they, it says they were all of one accord. And then it says, God, what does it say? Suddenly a sound like a violent rushing wind and tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each of them. The, you'll see that as the symbol of a Methodist shoes that, that split fire thing and it, it, it's just that it was a visible sign 
Now, I know people that have been filled with the Spirit, I mean, that the Spirit had full control of them, and I watched for that fire. But it doesn't happen. It was, I think, a one-time thing. It was needed to verify and authenticate them among themselves. And uh, the crowd doesn't see the flames. They, don't, they hear the wind, but they don't understand it all. And they start to gather. They hear that noise. What's happening here? And it's, it's a feast day. And there's all these people who come from all these other nations. Just there for the, what is that? And some of them have been hearing stories about Christ and stuff. And so then it tells us that these men stood together. Now, uh, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in different languages. At, what does your version say? In different tongues. And uh, the, that means languages. And here's the thing. Modern-day glossolalia, or modern-day speaking in tongues, does not cross the barriers of language, if that makes sense. If you have Russians in the crowd, and we stand up here, and suddenly I go into some kind of uh, speaking in tongues thing, they should be able to hear. If it's like this, the, the miracle that happened on the day of Pentecost, it didn't add confusion, it added understanding to people who spoke an entirely different language. And they were amazed at these tongues that it made the gospel clear to them. They said, these are Galileans. There's no way they could know the language in Bithynia or in all these other places that are mentioned. And they said, how come we hear it in our own language? That's the miracle. It isn't just that they spoke with boldness and they spoke, but it says they were understood. Everyone understood them in their own language. So it was a miracle not just in the disciples, but it was a miracle in the hearing of others, wasn't it? And what, what I want to say about this, however you might disagree about all of this, is that when the Holy Spirit is manifested, when it becomes visible in the sense that, that you just know that it's the Holy Spirit doing this, Sometimes it happens in, in, in people that speak to us. Sometimes it happens in people who are praising God. But it doesn't result. If even I, I do believe that there is a speaking in tongues in our day. That it's a genuine gift that people can have. But I want you to understand how you can know if it's really of God. If it is the Holy Spirit or not. Because there's a lot of fakes out there. There are churches that want to teach you how to speak in tongues. And you, who was, I don't know who I was talking to, but they said they went to this one church and they sat her down and they just said, say a riga, a riga, a riga, a riga, a riga, a riga, over and over, or dida, or something like that. Now, what was it? It was you. A dida, right? Adida, or something. Just keep repeating that until finally you speak in tongues. Like all spiritual gifts, they're given by the Holy Spirit for this, to glorify, to lift up, to make the world to know who Jesus Christ is. And if you ever hear someone claim to be speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit and by the and speaking in tongues, foreign or domestic, you know, and they're speaking in tongues, if the end result is that they walk out and everybody's praising them that, oh, you got the gift, or you're tremendous, we're going to follow you. The 
it wasn't of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always, always, when it is manifested, points to Jesus Christ. It brings people to Jesus Christ. It doesn't bring people to the person that is being used of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it attracts people to the Jesus, their Savior. And his task, if I can go a little further, I would have you understand, and I really believe this, John Bassanio, who used to pastor a great big church in Texas, and now he's pastor emeritus, he did this sermon, and I just can never forget this. But he says, the way I look at it is the holy, that Jesus Christ is the darling of the Trinity. Right? It's kind of like uh, God the Father dotes upon Jesus Christ. He loves him. The Holy Spirit, all he can talk about is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the one who joined with God the Father and the Holy Spirit and said, we will do this, I will do this. And it's Jesus is the one who is crucified of his own free will. He put aside all of his godliness. He became a human being, and he did it deliberately. He was never forced to die on the cross. In fact, they couldn't kill Jesus. He gave his life. The Bible somewhere says he could have called down 10,000 angels. Do you not believe that I could call down 10,000 angels? He allowed uh, Caesar Pilate to kill him. He allowed it, even though twice Pilate says, this man is not guilty. I find no fault in him. I'm, some people can find fault in everybody. And here is Pilate declaring before a hostile crowd, he said, this man is innocent. I find no fault in him. And they said, crucify, crucify, crucify. He even offered another prisoner for them to to, you know, to take the place of Jesus because they must have hated Barabbas and all the rest. Oh, no. They hated Jesus far worse. They wanted Jesus killed. And so Jesus dies on a cross. He allows them to nail his hands and feet to the cross. So you know the whole, we, we've talked about the crucifixion and everything. But I want you to understand the Holy Spirit, whenever he is shown, whenever he displays himself, it's always Jesus who gets the glory. In fact, we know so little about the Holy Spirit because he doesn't reveal to us who he is, how he is. We just know that he is a gift to us, given by God. He is Christ. The scripture says he is Christ in us. That Jesus lives in us and he lives in us, not Physically, I don't think there's room for two physical people in me, although some people are big enough. To, anyway, the, the point is that uh, uh, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. He walks with us. He talks with us. He speaks to our mind. He works in our body, and he uses us. Be, he uses only what we give to him. You say, well, pastor, how can you explain that sometimes the Holy Spirit seems to do far greater work than at other times in us? How do we explain that? Do you have more spirit after? I mean, when God is using you to sing a song or something, does the Holy Spirit give you more of himself? Or is it that you've given more of yourself for his use? 
You know why most of us aren't filled with the Spirit all the time? Because we don't do anything that requires that kind of person in us to take control of us. We don't go at any risk. If there are punishing Christians, we don't get in line. We don't admit we're a Christian. We don't need any power to be, stand before a judge because we're too busy hiding somewhere so we don't get caught being a Christian. There's an interesting sermon title that someone said, If you were arrested today because you were a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? They had to have boldness. Peter and John are going to stand before the same Sanhedrin that crucifies Christ, and the end result is they were filled with the Spirit, and they spoke with boldness, and when they were done, I mean, they were outlawed. They were told not to ever preach the gospel like that again and stuff. And they point their finger back at the Sanhedrin and they say, you decide. Is it right for us to obey God or to obey men? And it says, a little, little verse in that passage says, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The main impact of the Holy Spirit in your life is he will give you boldness. He will remove the fear and give you such a desire to speak out about the gospel of Christ. You'll walk through fire. You'll, you'll, you'll go any place and anywhere he calls you to go. And the passage we read in our Sunday school lesson today is God does not give us a spirit of fearfulness. That comes from somewhere else, and it isn't God. Satan wants us to be afraid. He can't make us lose our salvation, but he could make us so afraid we won't ever say a word about Christ. But the presence of the Spirit, if we'll let him, he'll give us a boldness, a boldness. No matter what the cost, that we will speak for Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question. Have you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you have, then Christ came in in the power, in the person of the Holy Spirit, and he dwells within you. So do you know that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? For he's your hope of glory. He's the one who is the seal of your salvation. If you don't think you have the Holy Spirit, you need to re-examine your decision to trust Jesus Christ because every born-again believer has the person of the Holy Spirit within them. No spirit, and there's no salvation. Well, how come some people seem to be filled with the Spirit all the time? Or they, they sure make a big show of it all and stuff. We always have to ask the question, is it a show? Can you act? Can you pretend that you're a Christian and not really be a Christian? That's our problem. We can. As far as people are concerned, if you learn to say brother and sister... If you learn to say, glory to God, you must be a Christian. But I guarantee you, Satan has all kinds of angels that could say, glory to God. But they cannot say, Jesus is Lord. 
Can you say with all honesty, Jesus is Lord of my life? You can't say that apart from the Holy Spirit. Not say it, mean it. And that is, that is the whole thing. The day of Pentecost changed things. They started out with 120 people in the upper room and the spirit and the boldness came upon them and it, it was like all of a sudden they're up there and none of them thought they were public speakers. Now they're all talking. And the people in the, in the audience are just amazed. They can hear it in their own language. And, and then Peter stands up and preaches. And I'm going to preach his sermon next Sunday. But I want you to know the end result at the end of the day, it says there were 3,000 people saved. You see, you and I could speak and we might influence one or two people. You might even get, you know, an article in the paper. You might, might have somebody that even remembers the way you parted your hair. You never know. But the truth is these men spoke and these women, I think there were women among that 120 and it says they all were filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we get to Peter's sermon, he says that that's a sign of the end times when men and women are speaking. And even slaves. You'll have to read that. Uh, read ahead for next Sunday. So let me say this. The most important thing today is that you know that you're saved. Oh, you, I hear that all the time, Pastor. You know that I'm saved. I don't know anything. I just know what you show me and what you tell me. I can't read your thoughts. I can't see your heart. Only God can see your heart. But you're the only one. You and God know whether or not you've trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I, I assume everybody's saved. That's a poor assumption because they all do things that I know just doesn't fit in with salvation. Let me get to this other part, though. If you know that you're saved, then why not yield yourself to the Holy Spirit so that you can be a bold witness? You can tell others without fear. Give over that which you've been holding back from Him. And if you don't know that you're saved, then you need to do something about it. I'll close with this. One church I preached a revival in, and... Uh, uh, it was a, a big church, and uh, this lady came forward, and uh, she says, I want to give my heart and life to Jesus. The only problem was she was the deacon's wife. She'd been teaching a Sunday school class. She'd been serving as a deacon's wife in that church 10 to 12 years. And she says, everyone thinks I'm a Christian, and I've been too embarrassed to walk down the aisle. But I decided today that I really want to be a Christian, not just let everyone think that I am. And she gave her heart and life to Christ after, uh, after being a so-called Christian for 12 years. I have a note on my sermon that says, when I last preached this sermon, there was someone baptized, and there was another member of the church who had been a member some 20 years ago, and he came that morning to accept Christ. He laid out a church for all those years because he 
they thought he was a Christian, but he wasn't really a Christian. All things aside, only you and God know whether you've really trusted Christ or not. And if there's any doubt, I'd rather come forward and accept Christ ten times and receive him than come forward once and not really know him. Does that make sense? Better to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. If I die today, I'll wake up in heaven. Do you know it? Are you secure? Are you sure? That's the most important issue. And the Holy Spirit, if you are saved, dwells within you and wants to do so much more than just give you a fire insurance policy. He wants to take your life and make it what God would have it be. You have to yield, though. Are you yielded to the Holy Spirit? Lord, look at our hearts. You know where we are. And we sometimes think more of ourselves than we really are. And we don't understand all of this. But Lord, teach us to humble ourselves, to yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit, and allow the Holy Spirit to take control. And Lord, we're not afraid or we, sometimes we are afraid to do that because we can't control the Holy Spirit. He controls us. Help us, Father, to let go and then let God. We ask that you'll speak to the hearts today of these who are in doubt about their salvation. And you'll speak to the hearts of these who know they're saved and yet are so seldom yielding themselves to the Spirit of God. Lord, it's not for our glory, it's that Jesus Christ might be glorified. We pray that you'll move in these hearts, that your spirit will convict of sin, and you'll convince us of the truth that has been shared, and that, Lord, we might yield ourselves to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to give an invitation so that you can act on what you, what the Spirit has said to your heart. If he's called you and convinced you that you are not saved, then you need to be saved. If he's called and convinced you you are saved, but you're not available to God, you're not yielded to the Spirit of God, that needs to quit. You need to give yourself to God. Maybe a rededication is in order. Or maybe you need to join a church where they can put you to work and in a harness where you can accomplish great things in the, in the kingdom of God through the Holy Spirit and to work in our day and time while there's yet breath in your life. You come as God speaks to you. I'll meet you up in the front. Doc Ritchie, if you'll come up and be another counselor, we ask you to come today as we sing. What number? 295. 295.